Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are beginning the end of Russia in Revolution as we read the first half of the conclusion. Then next week we will be wrapping it up and finally completing the book. So let's dive right in. Conclusion The Russian Revolution brought about massive political and social change. A 300-year-old dynasty was destroyed and a one-party state, inspired by Marxism-Leninism, installed. A dynastic empire was replaced by a federation of Soviet socialist republics. Key sectors of the economy ceased to be in private ownership and passed into the hands of the state, to be run by a complex bureaucracy of commissariats, trusts, and syndicates. The nascent industrial and commercial bourgeoisie vanished with a speed and irreversibility that was not matched in subsequent socialist revolutions, and the class of gentry landowners, which had been the principal, although never completely reliable, social support of the autocracy, was swept away with equal speed in a spontaneous peasant revolution. The Orthodox Church, another pillar of the old regime, was one of the few institutions to survive, but was institutionally undermined and its political and social influence drastically reduced. The counter-revolution, which emanated principally from the officer class of the Tsarist army, was decisively defeated in a bitter civil war. Although the new Soviet state continued to face external enemies at least as threatening as those faced by its Tsarist predecessor. The intelligentsia and professional middle classes survived but were no longer the moral challenge to the state that they had been under the old regime. By contrast, the working class, which had been the most militant force opposing the autocracy, became, in theory, the new ruling class in the socialist state, even as it gradually lost much of its former fighting spirit. The liberal and socialist parties that had established a rather tenuous existence after 1905 were neutralized by the Bolsheviks, who quickly consolidated power through a centralized party state, an army, and a political police. The civil society that had grown apace after 1905 withered, but society and culture under NEP remained resilient and capable of thwarting the more intrusive penetration by the state. A youthful population that emerged out of demographic collapse began to reject the inherited culture of the patriarchal village, family, and church. Looked at from a different angle, One notes striking continuities between the Tsarist and Soviet states. As the Bolshevik regime began to stabilize, the deeper structuring forces of Russian history began to reassert themselves. Those of geography, huge distances, scattered populations, inadequate communications, climate, the vulnerability of agriculture to severe winters and drought, geopolitics, the difficulty of defending frontiers, and the costs of maintaining an army over such a huge area, the constraints of the market and the paucity of capital, the ingrained patterns of a religious and patriarchal peasant culture, and the traditions of bureaucratic government. 
the Bolsheviks, who had so resoundingly rejected Russia's heritage in favour of proletarian internationalism, found that the greater the distance they travelled from October, the more they were hemmed in by these deep structuring forces. They did not become wholly captive to those forces, nor did revolutionary energies exhaust themselves, as Stalin's revolution from above demonstrated. But in many areas, the more utopian ideals of the early years were gradually abandoned and a new synthesis of revolutionary and traditional culture crystallized. This came about in part as hopes for international revolution faded and as the Bolsheviks adapted to the domestic, economic, social and cultural environment and to the international state system. It came about too, because the Bolsheviks were transformed from a party of insurrection into a party of state builders. This book has tried to offer an analysis that links human agency and the power of ideas to the deeper structuring forces of geopolitics, empire, economy, and culture. There was nothing preordained about the collapse of the Tsarist autocracy, nor even of the provisional government. The autocracy was not a decrepit and immobile regime blind to the changes that were taking place around it. From the 1860s, with the emancipation of the serfs and the reforms of Alexander II, and with urgency from the 1890s, the autocracy struggled to keep abreast militarily and economically of the major European powers by industrialising the country creating a network of modern communications, and modernizing its armed forces, all the while striving to maintain social stability. Time, however, was not on its side, since the major industrial powers, Germany, the USA, Britain, and France, were expanding their geopolitical and economic might and threatening to reduce Russia to a third-rate power. And as this backward society underwent rapid modernization, new social and political forces were unleashed that undermined domestic order and challenged the legitimacy of the autocracy. Industrialization, urbanization, and rural to urban migration produced embryonic social classes, notably industrial workers, a modern business class, and the professional middle classes all of which fitted uncomfortably into a traditional system of social estates dominated by the nobility. The autocracy was thus far from being a stable regime, as the 1905 revolution was dramatically to prove. In that year, its survival was largely due to the lack of synchronization of the different challenges it faced. The brief but strained union of all working people, of all the vital forces of the people, of all fair-minded intellectuals, that appeared in 1905 nevertheless exerted intense pressure on the regime to concede civil and political rights. Footnote 1. In the October Manifesto, Nicola II was forced to make not insignificant political concessions, although initially these did little to quell the intense revolutionary turmoil. 
The Stalipin coup of June 1907, however, signaled that the regime had triumphed over the forces that would overthrow it. In this context, the Third Duma settlement provided a framework by which the regime could have pushed through a program of modernization in a less tempestuous fashion. But this was not to be. The prospect was blocked essentially by the actions of one man, Nikola himself, who would not countenance any diminution of his authority as autocrat. This did not make another revolution inevitable. Despite political stasis, a civil society expanded in the years up to the First World War, and the case can be made that although society remained deeply unstable, Russia was moving away from revolution, as the countryside quietened down, as industrial output picked up, and as Russia's armed forces were strengthened. The international environment, however, was what was most menacing to the regime, and it was the outbreak of war in 1914 that doomed its chances of survival. The record of the autocracy in dealing with the demands of total war was not as dismal as contemporaries believed, but the human costs of war were hideous, and the social and economic disruption it caused was massive, especially in the western provinces. Crucially, war placed huge demands on a backward economy that could only be met at the expense of the living standards of the civilian population, and this widened the gulf between privileged elites and the common people. The continuing political stalemate between Duma and government ultimately persuaded even the high-ranking generals and politicians that Nikola II must go. The last quarter of a century of the Romanov dynasty then was ultimately a story of a modernizing regime overtaken by domestic and international forces that it had in part inspired, but that took on a magnitude that overwhelmed it. But it is also a story of a Tsar whose refusal to adapt to the new social and political realities of the regime he headed doomed that regime to extinction. The soaring hopes released by the February Revolution were soon dashed. The failure to establish democratic government may have been determined by the autocratic traditions of Russia and the weakness of the social forces that are conventionally assumed to have had an interest in democratic government. But we should not forget that in spring 1917 there was widespread enthusiasm for freedom. The problem was that soldiers, workers, and peasants understood this as entailing real economic power to the people, and this heavily socialized conception of democracy was in tension with the liberal conception of civil and political rights tied to the defense of private property. In the absence of progress towards the solution of their pressing socio-economic problems of land, food shortages, and the threat to jobs, the popular classes quickly became disillusioned with the new order. What doomed the prospects for democracy, however, was the decision of the provisional government to continue the war. There was nothing preordained about this. 
For the liberal politicians who took power, the continuation of the war was a matter of honour, of standing by the commitments to the Allies in the hope that they would help democratic Russia to consolidate once victory had been secured. This was the view shared by the most capable of the moderate socialists, Kerensky, who pushed for a new military offensive. The moderate socialist leadership of the Petrograd-Petrograd Soviet, in fact, could have taken power in March had they so wished, for they enjoyed the support of a majority of the country. Saratelli, at this time, crafted a rather sophisticated peace policy that a government based on the Petrograd Soviet could have promoted by dealing directly with the Allied governments rather than via the international socialist movement. The Allies would doubtless have rejected this proposal to suspend hostilities on the Eastern Front, but revolutionary defensism was in tune with the policy of peace without victory that Woodrow Wilson had favoured prior to the entry of the USA into the war in spring 1917. If a moderate socialist government had followed the logic of this policy and simply declared that the army would engage only in defensive operations, Germany certainly would not have objected, and it remains doubtful that the Allies would have been in a position to intervene quickly to uphold the Eastern Front. In the event of a suspension of hostilities, some progress, difficult and slow to be sure, could have been made in tackling the fundamental issues of land and the economic crisis, and a constituent assembly could have been speedily summoned. Such counterfactual speculation will annoy some readers, but it serves a heuristic function of opening up for consideration issues that are normally assumed to be closed and it reminds us of the extent to which the rapid shift to the left in politics was due to the policies of the moderate socialists. They refused to take power because they believed that the bourgeoisie was destined to rule, and they chose to acquiesce in the Allied demand for an offensive in June, despite knowledge of the intense popular desire for release from a punishing and futile war. It was this willingness to continue the war rather than to press the logic of revolutionary defensism that was the basic reason for the failure of democracy in 1917. Ironically, following the Kornilov Rebellion, a majority of moderate socialists did come round to the view that the coalition with the bourgeoisie was unworkable, something their bourgeois allies, the cadets, had never doubted and took up demands for a speedy end to the war, the transfer of land to the land committees, and the immediate summoning of the Constituent Assembly. If these demands had been raised by the Petrograd Soviet in spring, it might have made all the difference. As it was, the decision to continue the war focused the otherwise disparate grievances of the lower classes polarizing society in a way that undermined prospects for parliamentary-type politics. The Bolsheviks had entered the public arena during the 1905 revolution. Already fierce critics of the moderate socialist orientation towards the liberal opposition, but they had been pushed to the sidelines during the years of reaction, and then again by the war. 
Upon his return to Russia in April 1917, after a decade-long absence, Lenin's brilliant political instincts, in particular his deep mistrust of Russian liberals and his passionate belief that the war signaled a global crisis of capitalism, helped him size up the various political forces in a trenchant and perspicacious fashion. Against the leaders of his own party, he insisted that there must be implacable opposition to the imperialist war and to the new government of capitalists and landowners. He recognized the deep unpopularity of the war and the likelihood that the masses would turn against the provisional government once its inability or unwillingness to tackle their grievances became apparent. However, it was not until the threat of counter-revolution loomed in the shape of General Kornilov that the masses rallied around the Bolshevik slogans of Bread, Peace and Land and All Power to the Soviets. In the Soviets' support for the Bolsheviks and their left SR, Menshevik internationalists and anarchist allies soared not least because Soviet power was understood as involving the decentralization of power to the masses themselves. The Bolshevik party proved effective not because of its disciplined character, but because its activists, armed with slogans and a newspaper, campaigned relentlessly in the Soviets, factory committees, trade unions, and soldiers' committees. The vision that the Bolsheviks upheld in October was one of a socialist society rooted in Soviet power, workers' control, abolition of the standing army, and far-reaching democratic rights, leading in the longer term to an international workers' revolution. The complete abolition of capitalism and the reduction of the powers of the state to ones of simple administration. However, the exigencies of fighting a bitter civil war and of coping with an unprecedented collapse of social and economic life quickly sobered up the new Soviet government. Rival socialist parties, civil liberties, and the abolition of the death penalty were early casualties of Bolshevik determination to hold on to power. The idea of the working class as the agent of socialist revolution gave way gradually to the idea of the party and the Red Army as the guarantors of the workers' state. Within the party itself, this culture of authoritarianism soon made itself felt. M. S. Olminsky, initiator of the Commission to Study the History of the Bolshevik Party, Istpart, told the Ninth Party Conference in September 1920 that old Bolsheviks understood that the sacrifice of democracy was dictated by the emergency of war. Quote, but many of our comrades understand the destruction of all democracy as the last word in communism, as real communism. End quote. Bukharin could declare without embarrassment that, quote, proletarian compulsion beginning with executions and ending with obligatory labor service, are methods of forging communist humanity out of the human material left by the capitalist epoch. End quote. The idea that workers' revolution would be carried into Europe via Soviets gave way to the idea that the Bolshevik revolution would be carried abroad 
via the Red Army. Bukharin talked of Red intervention, and Radic averred, quote, We were always for revolutionary war. The bayonet is an essential necessity for introducing communism. End quote. Once the Civil War was over, there would be no going back to the vision of 1917. With NEP, the idea of workers' power at the level of the factory gave way to the desperate drive to raise labor productivity, and the priority became one of building a modern industrial state through short-term sacrifices by the peasantry and the working class. Before Lenin's death, Socialist revolution had been redefined as the party state mobilizing the country's human and material resources to overcome economic, social, and cultural backwardness as rapidly as possible. With NEP and the impending Revolution from Above, inaugurated by Stalin, it is worth reflecting further on the comparison between the Tsarist and Bolshevik states. For the development state of the Bolsheviks had certain features in common with its Tsarist precursor. First, under both systems, the state itself played the principal role in economic development, although the Tsarist government took on this task because the indigenous forces promoting capitalism were weak, whereas the Bolsheviks took it on willingly in the name of socialism. And like their Tsarist predecessor, the Bolsheviks could only build an industrial economy through extracting resources from the populace, which meant overwhelmingly the peasantry. The Bolshevik state also played a role in crafting the social structure of the new society, granting privileges to some groups and discriminating against others. In a way that had parallels to the imperial state crafting the system of social estates, the Bolshevik state was probably stronger than its Tsarist predecessor, since, notwithstanding the collapse of governmental authority during the Civil War, it began in the course of NEP to penetrate local society to an unprecedented, if still imperfect, extent, and to eliminate all sources of opposition. Yet, in many respects, too, it remained a weak state. Its capacity to extract the resources from the peasantry that it required for industrialization remained limited and rural government remained weak. If a strong state is one that can rely on a smoothly functioning bureaucracy and routine methods of government, then the resort to campaigns, storming, and to plenipotentiary rule by local satraps and their clients highlights the weaknesses of the Bolshevik state. Footnote 2. One of the most unexpected outcomes of the revolution was that the Bolsheviks would manage to reunite most of the territory that had once constituted the Tsarist Empire. In stark contrast, the First World War brought about the complete downfall of its Austro-Hungarian, Ottoman, and German rivals. This leads some historians to construe the Soviet Empire as simply a slightly modified version of the dynastic empire of the Tsars. Yet Lenin had been at pains to insist that when dealing with non-Russian peoples, the Bolsheviks should avoid the Great Russian chauvinism he believed had been the hallmark of Tsarist imperialism. Some of his closest comrades, often themselves from non-Russian backgrounds, 
did not share his sensitivity, and after Stalin's rise to power, elements of Russian ethnic dominance, such as their overrepresentation in senior political positions, the assumption of a Russian civilizing mission, the assumption that sedentary agriculture was superior to pastoralism, did reassert themselves. Even so, if this made the Soviet Union an empire, and this is a concept that is hard to define, it was a very different empire from its Tsarist predecessor. Footnote 3. Apart from the obvious difference that it was rooted in communist ideology and based on a command economy, the Soviet Union formally offered universal citizenship to all its inhabitants, regardless of ethnicity. And it institutionalized nationality both as a principle of territorial organization and as a defining feature of individual identity. By contrast, the Tsarist Empire, though multi-ethnic and multi-confessional, fought shy of institutionalizing nationality. Paradoxically, the Soviet Union engaged in vigorous nation-building so that national identity came to hold sway over religious, tribal, or kin-based identities, even as it claimed to transcend the national principle in favor of the class principle and of proletarian internationalism. A major theme of recent research has been the ubiquity of violence in the Russian Revolution, a topic discussed in Chapter 4. The group of US historians, sometimes called the Modernity School, has stressed the centrality of violence to Bolshevik state-building, which it sees as reliant on practices of categorization, information-gathering, policing, incarceration, and deportation that were common to other interwar European states but writ large in the Soviet case. Footnote 4. They see the First World War as a watershed that led to a massive expansion and militarization of practices designed to shape the social body. The use of terms such as annihilation or extermination by the Bolsheviks is seen as an expression of excisionary violence that is, violence designed to remove specific groups perceived to be socially harmful or politically dangerous from the social body. It is seen as adumbrating the violence of the totalitarian regimes of the interwar period which saw society, in the words of Zygmunt Bauman, quote, as an object of designing, cultivating, and weed poisoning, end quote. Footnote 5. This perspective offers insight into some aspects of the Civil War, but it is much more relevant to the violence of Stalinism. Indeed, as argued in Chapter 4, surveying the Civil War as a whole, one is struck by the extent to which fighting was rather traditional, all sides preferring close combat and the mobility provided by cavalry and relying on sabers and rifles, rather than the aerial bombardment and poison gas. The ubiquity of violence of all kinds in the Civil War has been revealed by the opening of archives. Popular support was not irrelevant to the ultimate success of the Reds. Workers had no wish to see a white victory, and when peasants were faced with that prospect of a white victory, 
they generally rallied to the Reds, in spite of their fierce opposition to the policies of food requisitioning, conscription, and the pursuit of deserters. Nevertheless, the extent to which the new regime relied on violence is now much clearer than it once was. Classic theorists of totalitarianism never doubted the central role played by violence, especially the Red Terror, in bringing the Soviet regime into existence, but they tended to see violence as a product of ideology, as an expression of class hatred. Recent work brings out the great number of perpetrators of violence, from the Red Army, the Cheka, and food detachments, through to the White Armies and their attendant warlords, through to insurgent ethnicities, peasants, greens, and bandits, and highlights the variety of functions that it played and the range of meanings it could communicate. Violence was not only used by contenders for power to crush opponents and to seek to establish a monopoly of force, it was used by peasant communities to protect themselves against outsiders or to uphold moral economies, as when crowds beat up hapless speculators. Footnote 6. It was used, too, by ordinary people against other ordinary people, manifest in low-level actions such as raids on neighboring communities for food, fodder, horses, or booty, and use of bloodshed to settle ancient scores. Footnote 7. Violence was not only instrumental, it was also a way of bolstering social identities and of creating bonds of solidarity, as with Ottomani in Ukraine, and also a way of creating and dramatizing differences of power, of sending messages to potential adversaries, and of warding off threats. Footnote 8. In fact, purely in relation to the 1920s, Stalinism in the 1930s was a different matter, it is not obvious that Soviet society was more violent than its Tsarist predecessor. Historians often fail to convey how ingrained violence was in late imperial Russia, evinced in colonial conquest, police repression, counter-insurgency, terrorism by left and right, and anti-Jewish pogroms, extending too into more everyday forms of violence such as practices of samusud, self-judgment, meted out by peasant communities on those who transgressed their norms. Footnote 9. To the flogging of prisoners, to beatings in the workplace, child abuse, and wife beating. At least some of these violent practices diminished under the Soviet regime. Any judgment on this matter, however, depends on how violence, a notoriously slippery and easily expandable concept, is defined. For the Bolsheviks, the institutionalized inequalities and injustices of the old order, poverty, malnutrition, exploitation at work, susceptibility to cold, damp, and disease, were what was fundamental. Not everyone would accept that these are best understood under the rubric of what would later be called institutionalized violence. But insofar as these phenomena, so much woven into the fabric of daily life that they were taken for granted, caused bodily suffering and privation there is a case for categorizing them as violence. 
And in both the 1905 and 1917 revolutions, the liberal and socialist opposition construed poverty and exploitation as affronts to the innate dignity of the human person. The Bolshevik Revolution certainly did not remove poverty and exploitation. Indeed, it would be decades before the material conditions of life in general surpassed those of the Tsarist regime. But we should pause before accepting the view that the Russian Revolution initiated a cycle of escalating violence that inevitably culminated in the Gulag. The Bolsheviks promised that the revolution would elevate working people to the status of a ruling class. This never came about. Even with respect to basic working and living conditions, the revolution brought about only limited improvements. Peasants certainly achieved their historic demand that land pass into the hands of those who worked it, but rural living standards had scarcely begun to reach pre-war levels when violent collectivization was unleashed, and they would not improve until the 1960s. For workers, the picture was more mixed. Following the spectacular collapse of industry during the Civil War, workers did experience some improvements compared with the pre-revolutionary situation especially in respect of working hours and labour rights, although much less so in terms of wages. The eight-hour working day, which had been a key demand of the 1905 revolution, was achieved within days of the October seizure of power. This was symbolically important, but the Bolshevik government was not actually the first government to institute it on a statewide scale. In February 1917, the Mexican government had incorporated an eight-hour day into the Constitution, although it did not become operational until 1931. And in Western Europe, the First World War hastened the legalization of the eight-hour day, with Germany instituting it as a consequence of the November Revolution in 1918 and France in April 1919. In addition, there was significant improvement in healthcare and education in the 1920s, although this was not matched in housing. And that's going to do it for this week. As I said, next week will be the final episode of this long series. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is part of the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts, as well as go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support the network and get access to even more shows. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find all of his work there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.